I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast. Because there is this inherent power dynamic, and it really takes intention and time when you're on the investor side to think about where the partner on the other side is coming from and how they're experiencing your process. That's Margot Kane, Chief Investment Officer for Spring Point Partners in Philadelphia. The family office invests in diverse entrepreneurs and asset managers with an eye toward community-driven change. Margot joined Monique Aiken for last week's Impact Briefing. Their conversation was so rich, we thought you'd want to hear it in full. Let's jump right in. So Margot, this week you had a great piece in Impact Alpha about how to boost the impact of catalytic capital in supporting emerging fund managers. First, tell us a little bit about how Springpoint came around to this strategy. Sure. Thanks, Monique. So we were founded a couple of years ago uh, in Philadelphia, so relatively new entity ourselves. We are a social impact organization. We invest in transformational leaders, networks, and solutions that power community change and advance justice. So we deploy multiple tools for that uh, to advance that mission. One of those tools is investments. Um, so we are a mission-driven organization and uh, have multiple strategies that we focus on. One of those strategies is really rooted in economic justice. And that for Springpoint, considering kind of where we operate in the asset owner and philanthropic world, is really focused on how can we build opportunities for wealth generation for people that have historically been excluded from those opportunities or systematically stripped of opportunity to build and and retain wealth. And that's really a strategy aiming to figure out effective ways to leverage investment to close the racial wealth gap. So one of the ways in this current, you know, capitalist economy in which we operate, that you can build meaningful wealth, the kind of wealth that can be transferred intergenerationally is through business ownership and and specifically through high growth business ownership, things like venture backed businesses um, or other forms of businesses that are profitable, cash flowing um, and, and not, you know, survival mode businesses. So those kinds of businesses build ownership, uh, build wealth for their owners, and also build wealth for their employees. So could you tell us about some of the fund managers you've seeded or anchored as a result of this? Sure. Uh, so one of them, I'll start with Philly since we're here. Uh, one of them is Plainsight Capital, which was founded by Sylvester Mobley and Alex King. And they uh, came together to launch an early stage firm uh, really focused on emerging founders in tech, which corresponds directly with both their own individual experience as entrepreneurs, but also with Sylvester's experience founding a really successful not-for-profit here in Philly called Coded by Kids, which trains youth to be both founders and also really high-level operators in, in high-growth tech businesses. They have a really specific strategy and footprint and thesis. They, they're putting together a team, but because they're not coming with their own vast personal wealth to start a, a management company in private equity and, and really survive that 
fundraising gauntlet, which typically lasts more than a year, as we know now, um, they they needed some supports to get this up and running. And so we did two things in, in Plainsight's case. We provided some support for the startup operating expenses of the fund, knowing that you know bringing, bringing folks on full-time is a upfront expense. And a lot of investors are wary about supporting you know, solo folks that are starting a fund, they need a team, they need partners. Um, and, and if you've already got one, like, you know, that just doubles your expense burden before you're earning any management fees. So um, that's, that's one of the things that we did. And the other thing we did with Ben Franklin Technology Partners here in Philly was provide a warehouse line for Plainsight to start making investments and build that quote unquote new team track record uh, before they uh, go to market later this year uh, to raise the fund in earnest, uh, because that's another really key barrier we see first-time fund managers, and particularly fund managers of color, face. Another one um, is uh, Ruthless for Good. That's a New Orleans-based but national footprint fund that Aaron Walker uh, started, and Aaron Walker had previously founded and led Camelback Ventures, a really successful fellowship program accelerator um, and you know general thought leader um, around social entrepreneurship, both in for-profit and not-for-profit models and uh, leaders of color and female leaders. And this fund, we participated in the first close uh, as a bit of an anchor alongside Gratitude Railroad. We knew Aaron from his Camelback Ventures day. So we knew we were backing someone who is going to be not only an excellent investor, but also an excellent field builder and, and coach and mentor for the founders that he's supporting. So uh, we came in at the first close and provided a lot of early feedback before that on things like governance structure, advisors, investment policy, uh, limited partnership agreement. So a lot of these uh, very technical things that go into structuring a fund that you can be a really talented investor with a track record, but it doesn't mean that you know all the ins and outs of various uh, rights that you want your LPAC to be opining on. Uh, we see a lot of limited partnership agreements and created a, a safe space for the push and pull of that conversation um, with Aaron as, as he was putting it all together. And you know, I think that, that hopefully helped him on the fundraising journey. And it was really a great way for us to get to know him a lot better too. So we often hear about flexible patient and risk tolerant elements of catalytic capital. And you made the point in the piece just that how such investment capital is, de is deployed is just as important as the deployment of the capital itself. So tell us a little bit about how you tried to change the process or go against the grain. And you mentioned power dynamics. That's not often heard from the LP side of the equation. So, you know, there's some sensitivities in your piece that I think are really important to both visibilize and name as you do this work? I mean, I wish I could say I had, I had it figured out, Monique, but I'm still learning this uh, as well. So uh, I can, I can share some examples of how it's come up, how, you know, missteps I've made and, and how we're working on figuring it out uh, because there is this inherent power dynamic in investing full stop, right? And I've been on both sides of the table uh, my whole career. So I, I know, um, I know some of it. And 
it really takes intention and time when you're on the investor side to think about where the partner on the other side is coming from and how they're experiencing your process, particularly when they're new to fundraising in this milieu, right? In this fund manager context, uh, since none of these first time fund managers we're supporting, for example, are unused to fundraising. They're extremely successful fundraisers in lots of other contexts. And one of the things that was so challenging uh, in, in kind of launching the strategy was we would spend many months in the diligence getting to know the, the fund managers, building trust, trying to kind of articulate our motivation in, in supporting them and understanding what their motivations were in terms of entering this industry. And then we would get to like legal documentation, right? And that's just a horrible trust destroying experience, <laughs> especially if you just leave it to the lawyers. I love lawyers, got lawyers in my family, but like, right, trust building is not their strong suit. Um, and we just kept having these impasses, which is not, you know, unusual in deal work, right? Especially in, in first time closes or complex structures. But because the trust was so critical and the relationship quality is so critical to success in these cases. Um, that's one place where we, we really rethought what our process was on the close and also how we managed legal review. Uh, so for example, we don't do lawyer to lawyer um, stuff. I, my team and I run interference. Uh, so we receive our counsel's comments. We use our discretion to figure out which ones we're going to go with. Um, and kind of repackage those. Um, and we try to keep the, the conversation at, at, you know, business lead to business lead um, as much as possible. We went through kind of standard LPAs and picked out what terms are market for a good reason and what terms are market for bad reasons, like just because it's precedent, right? And there's some, there's some, you know, very standard language we have in a bunch of different LPAs that's really kind of gross, but you're going to have counsel that's like, well, that's market. Um, which is my least favorite defense of any term uh, because it means nothing because uh, it means different things to everybody. Um, so really trying to figure out like, what do we care about and why? Uh, and then what are we going to, you know, what are we going to negotiate and why? And then instead of being like, this is how you need to change things, we would say, tell us why, why you structured it this way, which is differently than how we've seen it before and be open to living with it um, and, and not, you know, having to, to redline everything um, to death, uh, to get, to get us over the finish line, uh, accepting some of that ambiguity and discomfort, um, when there was really good reason for it. Um, and I'll give you a very specific example in some cases, the, the removal of the GP language in most of these fund agreements includes things like, uh, you know, if you're convicted of a felony, which when you are intersecting that with, folks who are folks of color, specifically, you know, black leaders who, um, you know, have a history of being unjustly accused under the law. That's a really problematic thing to have your investors be like, oh, we can remove you in case, you know, this happens. And this is your business. This is your lifeblood. You've poured your savings into this. Um, so those are some of the things that we've thought about changing in terms of how we do it. And on diligence process, there, you know, in each stage we've been, we've been adjusting, like we'll piggyback on other folks, diligence calls and reference calls, 
um, really in order to try to reduce the, the time load of fundraising on these managers and increase efficiency. And in that vein of intentional thinking um, on each step of the process, you know, there's fund one and after that, fund two. And often that's created for some of these emerging fund managers and the obstacles than the first time around. So what do you make of that and what can we do about it? Such a good question. And this is something that we're wrestling with now um, and in conversation with our, our first time managers, as well as folks who have made it over that hurdle um, about, because you're really making the, the transformation in some ways from uh, you know, Matt Conwell, who who raised his fund on Twitter, effectively, <laughs> from individuals, amazingly, uh, to getting, you know, more institutional folks in the door um, to grow that fund size. And it's essential. I know some people talk about, well, why, why grow your assets under management? Um, what's the point? Um, and the point is, uh, in order to execute on your strategy and build a team, you know, you need that. That's the business model of funds. And all these folks are operating when they're undercapitalized on, you know, pennies, basically, and cannot, you know, hire the team that they want to execute the work. So, so we're very much in favor of, of planning for the long term. And part of our diligence in fund one is understanding where the fund manager is in terms of thinking about fund two, three, and four, and trying to think about the infrastructure pieces that need to go into place. And we're sort of starting to see that now on the horizon and, and doing things like, let's talk early about your key terms, you know, which ones you're going to fight for and which ones you're going to try to make as like plain as possible. Um, let's talk now about compliance infrastructure. How would you deal with operational due diligence questionnaire? Um, you know, and, and there's, there's a bunch of infrastructure that doesn't make sense to ask of a first-time fund manager because they're not going to have the time or, or capacity to execute on it. But as long as they know it's coming, you can help build their capacity over time um, and, and provide those supports. I think what I talked about in the blog was bringing in that expertise. They're not going to have a chief compliance officer on day one. They may never, because you can outsource that now, right? But just flagging that by the time you're fund three, this ha you have to really answer this question. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that goes a long way in helping them plan ahead. It's it's no, they're entrepreneurs in their own right. You know, it's no different than funding early stage businesses and figuring out what kind of expertise and supports you can bring to the table. Uh, and another point I deeply appreciated in your piece was about letting go of some of the instinct to mitigate every risk by overstructuring or other things that might actually hamstrung success of the folks essentially working at cross purposes of your own interest, as well as the interests of the, the person you're purported to be looking to support. So as a chief investment officer, how do you think about some of those other risks that are named that people try to um, structure away or do other things that relate to control that um, are not truly in your scope, to your point of some yeah. other ways you've rethought? So I think the hardest, one of the hardest things in investing is knowing the risk you're taking because you're always taking one. You're always taking some risk, right? Always. Even if you're putting cash under your mattress, you're taking risk of a house fire or a burglar. So pretending you can mitigate it all away is, is silly. And we also know that people perceive certain risks to be higher when they're less familiar with those risks. There's a, per, there's a perception gap versus an actuality 
gap on, on risk profile. Um, so the first thing that we did was get very clear internally about what risks we're willing to take. And we are willing to take risks on first-time teams, first-time models, in exchange for building new um, new centers of entrepreneurship and investment that's are, that are really centered in founders of color, in equity, in um, more diverse representation. That's a risk we're willing to take. Not everyone can say that, but that is something that we also kind of watch very closely. And as I think I said in my piece, that the main mitigant is the quality of your relationship, which is one of the reasons why having a kind of a trust destroying diligence process <laughs> is a bad idea. If you, if you want to take this kind of risk, you, you also have to think about how you interact with folks. And I think, um, unfortunately, especially in the, in the self-identified catalytic capital space, we're not used to uh, adjusting, right, to the realities of others. Um, there's less accountability for our business model relative to theirs. And most of their investors aren't going to be catalytic investors. Um, and, and some of that, you know, awareness of, you know, understand the risk you're willing to take, understand the risk that other people will take and try to get them to take the risk they're cool with and take the risk that you can uniquely take. And, and being a catalytic capital provider means there's a lot of risk you can take. That's why you're there. Um, so, but you have to be internally clear on it and, and eyes wide open. And so when we think about structure and who's capable of, de of delivering on cat catalytic capital goals, you mentioned that you can do some things that other investors can't. Uh, why is that? And, um, you know, how can you all lean into that and maybe other bring others along with you? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I think that's some of the hardest work that um, honestly, I, I think the broader industry hasn't hasn't fully figured out. Um the reason that Springpoint can take that kind of risk is because our founders really were intentional about our structure and they structured for maximum flexibility. That's how we were able to get really clear on what risks we were willing to take versus which ones we weren't and construct an investment strategy around it. We were not bound by tools that are required because of the form of our institution. We're an LLC, highly flexible. Um, you know, we're not we're not crafting our investment strategy for tax optimization of any sort or to meet compliance requirements, which you see. Uh, you know, there's a lot of capital out there that's doing great work. You know, folks that are deploying CRA capital, certainly PRIs, um, but they are bound by the nature of the tool, which is tied to the nature of the institution. Um, and then there's on top of that folks that are, you know, uh, managing other people's money. They're not asset owners themselves. They're fiduciaries. They're, um, they're being held to a particular, you know, standard. And unless the asset owners say, this is, this is the kind of risk I want to take, they can't unilaterally make those kinds of decisions. Um, so, so structuring to be catalytic. And I really liked how Rebecca uh, Butler put it at Grow Foundation is setting a return target, right, that enables them to be catalytic was required, you know, putting up that, you know, policy statement and setting it up in that way. Um, those kinds of intentionalities it, are required. It, it doesn't happen by accident. 
But I do think lots of different kinds of investors can take a catalytic lens. I don't think it means everybody needs to have patient and low cost and <laughs> first in money. I think if you're managing you know, more traditional sources of capital, you can still make moves in ways that can influence markets and generate generate outsized impact as long as you you know know what risk you're taking and you're comfortable taking it. I mean, so much of what I loved about your piece is that there's value that's direct in terms of capital and some of the other things that you named that are wraparound offerings that you deliver on. Um, but so much is also signal. And that's one of the ways that we influence market, build a market, come together, find each other. Um, so what do you feel like you left on the cutting room floor in the editing process of your piece? What did I leave on the cutting room floor? Probably a lot. <laughs> I'm not very good at reading blogs. Um, I think what I left on the cutting room floor was is a little bit related to the last point I made, which is while I, you know, the Catalytic Capital Consortium has, it was a really fun set of conversations, and I learned a lot from my co-practitioners in the space, and I hope that the guidance note really inspires others to to kind of join us, right, and, and continue these, this experiment with us. Um, but I want us to be a little less wedded to the tool and definitional exercises around the tool. I think the how we do this work ultimately matters more than the tool. And it's more inclusive as well, right? It means you don't have to be at a foundation. You don't have to be a high net worth individual, right? Like there's lots of ways to think about this, um, to think about your money as market signal, as influence, as being aligned with your values and as starting something. And people do this all over the place without ever, ever hearing the phrase catalytic capital and like identifying that way. So I would like to, you know, think about the, the approach, the mentality, the how, and the how we show up with each other and be in community with each other as we do the work, because it can be really painful to raise this kind of money. It's very scarce uh, resource and, um, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, so I, I guess that's probably what I left off. Well, I am delighted to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, for you, for your humility, you wrote a great piece. So we do hope that we see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Monique. And I really enjoyed the conversation. That's going to do it for this Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Margot Kane and Springpoint Partners at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to Margot, Monique, our producer Isaac Silk, and to the whole team at Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable edge. And to all of you agents of impact, thank you again for all that you do.